Welcome to Peed Soup. I'm your host, Jim McCarthy, and today we're talking thyroid disorders. Thyroid hormone is a huge driver for metabolism, temperature regulation, growth, and brain development, and it has an impact right from the start of a pregnancy. For the first half of gestation, most of a baby's thyroid hormone is coming across the placenta, so it's important for mom to have a healthy thyroid too. Since this topic reaches all the way back to before conception, let's get started. First, a little bit about management of thyroid disease in pregnancy. Strictly speaking, it's not a pediatric topic, but it's close enough that it could come up on an exam or in practice. Because having appropriate thyroid hormone levels is so important for development, it's a good idea for any woman with known thyroid disease to make sure it's well controlled before she starts trying to get pregnant, and to maintain that control throughout pregnancy. For hypothyroidism, it's fairly straightforward. You make sure the dose of levothyroxine is keeping the TSH and free T4 levels where they need to be, and then keep monitoring throughout the pregnancy to adjust for changes in metabolism and levels of thyroid binding globulin. For hyperthyroidism, it can be a little bit harder. Hyperthyroid conditions can be treated with surgery or radiation therapy, neither of which are a great idea during pregnancy, or with medications to block the production of thyroid hormone and keep it at a normal level. For most patients, the drug of choice is methimazole. Unfortunately, methimazole causes a wide range of congenital problems, including aplasia cutis, a partial lack of skin development, esophageal atresia, coanal atresia, facial abnormalities, and developmental delays. Since avoiding congenital problems is really our primary goal during any kind of prenatal treatment, pregnant women are usually switched to propothiouracil, or PTU. There's a little bit of conflicting data out there, and methimazole is used fairly commonly in Europe and Asia, but if it comes up on a test, just say switch to PTU when the patient starts trying to conceive. If something does go wrong in the prenatal period, you run into congenital thyroid disorders. On the hyperthyroid end of the spectrum, the biggest thing to keep in mind is neonatal Graves' disease. As background, Graves' disease is an autoimmune disorder where the body produces antibodies that bind to the thyroid and stimulate it to produce thyroid hormone. If those antibodies cross the placenta and hit the baby's thyroid, they cause neonatal Graves' disease. About 0.2% of women have Graves' disease, and somewhere between 1 and 5% of their babies develop neonatal Graves'. Putting it all together, that comes out to around 1 in 25,000 infants being affected. Symptoms include increased heart rate, poor growth despite having an increased appetite, tremors, poor sleep, and overactive deep tendon reflexes. Infants with neonatal graves are also more likely to have low birth weight, premature birth, microcephaly, frontal bossing with a triangular face, and they'll sometimes have a diffuse goiter from those thyroid-stimulating antibodies triggering the gland to grow. If you know a mother has Graves' disease, there are a few things you should do for risk assessment and monitoring. Testing the mother for thyroid-stimulating antibodies in the third trimester can help determine the risk of neonatal graves. If the antibody test is positive, the baby is at a higher risk and should be monitored more closely. If the test is negative, you should be in the clear. If you don't know the mom's antibody status, or if the mother is on medication for graves, you should check the infant's T3, free T4, and thyroid-stimulating hormone at birth, 3 to 5 days old, and again at 10 to 14 days. For babies whose mothers were on medication for hyperthyroidism, there's also a chance of transient hypothyroidism. You usually don't have to do much, just keep monitoring and it will generally resolve itself by around 2 weeks old. Babies with neonatal graves will also show up on the newborn screen with elevated T3 and T4 and low TSH. 
Treatment involves methimazole and a beta blocker to help control the symptoms. And if the baby is really sick, adding a steroid can help block thyroid secretion and decrease conversion from T4 to T3 in the tissue. Once the baby starts improving, you can taper off the medications while keeping an eye on the labs. Everything should get back to normal, medication-free with normal thyroid function, once mom's antibodies clear the system, usually in 3 to 12 weeks. Congenital hypothyroidism is probably the way thyroid disease is most likely to come up on an exam. If you're using this podcast just to study, I'm sorry for making you wait. These patients have problems with growth along with the cold intolerance, dry skin, low energy, and brittle hair that go with hypothyroidism in general. But the biggest concern for congenital hypothyroidism is the severe cognitive impairment. Way back when, the syndrome of stunted growth and cognitive problems caused by congenital hypothyroidism was called cretinism, but that's one of those terms that used to be medical but now is just offensive. Incidentally, the terms moron, imbecile, and idiot also used to have specific definitions based on IQ. A moron had an IQ between 51 and 75, an imbecile fell between 26 and 50, and an idiot had an IQ of less than 25. Medicine used to be a lot weirder. But then again, doctors 50 years from now will probably say the same thing about us. Getting back on topic, the most common cause of congenital hypothyroidism is abnormal thyroid development or some kind of intrinsic defect in thyroid hormone production, although it can also be part of a bigger problem with the pituitary gland or hypothalamus. The overall incidence from all causes is 1 in every 3 to 4,000 births, and there's a higher rate in girls, Hispanic children, and kids who have trisomy 21. Luckily for us and our patients, those statistics about incidents and higher risk groups are mostly academic because screening for congenital hypothyroidism is mandatory in all 50 states and the District of Columbia. That's especially good considering that even though pilot screening programs started as early as 1974, the first AAP screening guidelines didn't come out until 1993. Screening for hypothyroidism is especially important because these babies look completely normal at birth mostly because of the thyroid hormone from mom that's been coming across the placenta during pregnancy. If the diagnosis isn't made, symptoms like lethargy, hoarse cry, feeding problems, constipation, enlarged tongue, and hypothermia can take a few months to develop, and the longer you go without treatment, the harder it can be to reverse the damage. There are a few different screening methods, but they're all based on the feedback loop that controls thyroid hormone production. Thyroid stimulating hormone, or TSH, triggers the thyroid to produce T4, which then feeds back on the hypothalamus and pituitary to put the brakes on TSH release. A low T4 usually means a high TSH. The only exception is in central hypothyroidism, where the problem is with TSH production from the pituitary, not the thyroid gland itself. Some states test TSH and run the T4 if it's abnormal, others start with T4 and use TSH as a backup, and plenty just check both right away but the overall performance for any of the testing protocols is about the same. If your patient screens positive for hypothyroidism with a low T4 and high TSH, they should immediately see a doctor and have another TSH and T4 drawn to confirm the screening test. Once the blood has been drawn, you should start treatment with levothyroxine without waiting for the results. We'll get into the details of treatment in a minute, but you start meds right away because the risk is so low. If you give levothyroxine to a baby who doesn't need it, All you'll do is suppress their own thyroid production for a little while, and they'll be up and running like usual once the medication stops. Every day counts when you're trying to get thyroid levels to the right range for the brain to develop correctly. 
Just a couple quick things about two of the other not quite normal screening results you might see. A low T4 with a normal TSH is sometimes seen in preterm or sick babies. It might be transient, but you should look for midline facial abnormalities, hypoglycemia, and other signs of problems with the hypothalamus or pituitary that might make the TSH inappropriately low. You should repeat the labs again to follow up, but there isn't a clear consensus on when that should happen. What to do with a screening test that shows normal T4 and high TSH is controversial too. Elevated TSH suggests that there's some kind of problem, but if the T4 is normal, do you need to do anything about it? As I was reading to get this episode ready, most groups recommend repeating labs at 2 and 4 weeks old and treating if the TSH stays higher than 10. If it's elevated, but not over 10, nobody's quite sure what the best route is. Lack of consensus does mean unlikely to come up on an exam, but it's worth keeping the information in your back pocket if you deal with any newborn screening results. For treatment, the number one priority is getting the baby to a euthyroid state, which means starting levothyroxine at 10 to 15 micrograms per kilogram per day and adjusting the dose based on follow-up labs. Most guidelines recommend aiming for the upper half of the age-adjusted reference range for free T4 and checking labs two to four weeks after starting treatment. After that, you do every one to two months in the first six months, every three to four months from six months to three years old, and every six to 12 months from three years old until the patient is done growing. Those lengthening gaps between checks are based on the assumption that everything's going well. You're never wrong to test ahead of schedule if you're adjusting dosages or something doesn't seem quite right. In addition to medication, you should take a complete history, including the family history and any medications mom was taking during pregnancy. You should also do some imaging, either a thyroid ultrasound, iodine uptake scan, or both, to see if you can identify any functional thyroid tissue to give a better idea of exactly what's wrong. An endocrinology consult is also probably a good idea, at the very least to establish a backup in case anything gets complicated. It's nice if you can get the diagnostic workup done earlier than later, but it's not as important as starting treatment. The sooner you start, the better the outcomes are. For patients who start treatment by three weeks old, which shouldn't be a problem with the way newborn screening programs run, the data shows there's next to no difference in outcomes between kids with congenital hypothyroidism and ones with normal thyroid function from birth. Acquired hypothyroidism has similar symptoms to congenital, but it isn't quite as urgent to treat. The most common clinical symptom is actually a drop in height velocity. It can predate the other symptoms by years, but it usually isn't the sign that prompts an investigation because it's slow and subtle at onset. The other symptoms are consistent with hypothyroidism in anyone else. Low energy, cold intolerance, constipation, dry skin, and muscle aches. On physical exam, kids often look short and overweight, although most of that extra weight is retained fluid. They'll have a slow heart rate and delayed tendon reflexes, and might have a diffusely enlarged thyroid, a goiter, depending on the cause of their hypothyroidism. The causes for acquired hypothyroidism are similar across all ages and fall into four major categories, autoimmune, iodine, medication-induced, and iatrogenic. Iatrogenic hypothyroidism happens after surgery or radiation therapy that affects the thyroid or pituitary. It's the least common in kids, so that's all we're going to say about it here. Medication-induced also isn't terribly common in pediatrics, although if your patient takes phenytoin, phenobarbital, or valproate, you should keep an eye on their thyroid. Iodine deficiency is rare in the U.S., but is one of the most common causes of hypothyroidism worldwide. So think about it if you have a patient who's recently arrived to the U.S., either in your clinic or on a test, with signs of hypothyroidism. 
Oddly enough, excess iodine can also cause hypothyroidism by inhibiting hormone synthesis. This isn't very common, but think about it with certain medications and nutritional supplements. The most common cause of acquired hypothyroidism is chronic, autoimmune, or Hashimoto thyroiditis. The body starts producing antibodies that attack the thyroid gland. Patients can have thyroid atrophy or goiter depending on the details of the immune response, but the end result in either case is hypothyroidism. The condition is more common in girls and Caucasians, with higher rates in patients with trisomy 21, Turner syndrome, type 1 diabetes, celiac disease, and other autoimmune disorders. If you're suspicious about hypothyroidism in your patient, as always, you should check the TSH and free T4. Make sure it's a free T4 and not the total, because the total is affected by binding proteins, and free T4 is what's functional out in the tissues. You should also double-check that you're using the age-adjusted reference ranges to make the diagnosis. Like we said earlier, an elevated TSH and low T4 mean hypothyroidism. The next step if you're looking for autoimmune thyroiditis is checking antithyroid peroxidase antibodies. There are some other types of antibodies, but antithyroid peroxidase is found most often in people with Hashimoto's. As an aside, an elevated TSH with a normal free T4 is subclinical hypothyroidism. There's no clear recommendation on what to do. Some say wait it out and recheck, while others say there's not much harm in treating. Once again, lack of clarity means lack of test questions, but real patients will still need to know what to do. Treatment is the same for anyone at any age with hypothyroidism. You give levothyroxine, but the dose usually needs to be adjusted. Kids clear thyroid hormone out of their bodies faster than adults, so they need higher doses to maintain a good steady state. The recommendations I found for initial daily doses were 4 to 6 micrograms per kilogram for 1 to 3 year olds, 3 to 5 mics per kilogram for ages 3 to 10, and 2 to 4 micrograms per kilogram for kids 10 to 16 years old. The doses are lower than for infants with hypothyroidism for a few reasons. Babies need higher levels of thyroid hormone for brain development, and older kids with acquired hypothyroidism might have a higher level of production from their own thyroid before adding the replacement. Regardless, you're still going to be checking levels regularly and adjusting the dose as needed, so these are just starting points. For hyperthyroidism in older kids, we come back around to Graves' disease. There are other possible causes, but Graves' is by far number one. It's most common in African Americans and girls, and usually hits after puberty. As a quick refresher from a few minutes ago, antibodies bind to the TSH receptor and stimulate thyroid hormone production and release independent of the usual feedback loop. Kids will have accelerated growth, but their epiphyseal plates will also mature more quickly, which, reaching back to the episode on growth, can actually lead to a lower adult height. Patients with hyperthyroidism have high heart rates, hyperactive tendon reflexes, labile moods, poor sleep, and poor weight gain. You might also see tremors and muscle spasms. Missy Elliott actually has Graves' disease, and when she dropped off the map for a while, it was because of a car crash that happened when she started having leg spasm while she was driving. If you guessed that you should check TSH and free T4 to diagnose hyperthyroidism, thanks for paying attention. In this case, TSH will be low despite high hormone levels. The next step for identifying Graves' disease is to measure TSH receptor antibodies, then follow up with iodine uptake studies to confirm the diagnosis. For treatment, there are three major options that all have their risks and benefits. The first line for kids is typically medication. They usually respond well over weeks to months, and beta blockers can help with some of the other symptoms in the meantime. Methimazole is the drug of choice because it has a better side effect profile, 
and the Endocrine Society and the American Thyroid Association both recommend against using propylthiouracil in pediatric patients. As the patient stabilizes, you can slowly wean off medication, and there's a chance of permanent remission. The downside is that even with its better side effect profile, methimazole still carries a risk of agranulocytosis, vasculitis, and hepatitis, so patients need to be monitored fairly frequently. I'm going to lump the next two options, radioactive iodine therapy and thyroidectomy, together because they're different ways to achieve the same goal. For patients whose thyroid glands don't respond to medication, you get rid of the thyroid with either a dose of radioactive iodine or a surgery, and use levothyroxine to provide the right amount of hormone. There are a few other indications besides failure of medical management, but most kids get at least a trial of medication before moving to either one of these options. Both radioactive iodine therapy and surgery provide a permanent fix for hyperthyroidism, but they also make you permanently hypothyroid, and the procedures themselves have a few risks. The last topic I want to touch on is thyroid nodules. It's not a common issue in pediatrics. It's estimated that about 2% of kids have a thyroid nodule, and most of them are benign and resolve on their own. There's a nice algorithmic approach for what to do if you notice a bump on your patient's thyroid during an exam. Again, for any questions about the thyroid, the first step is to check the TSH. If it's low, you should move on to an iodine uptake scan and ultrasound to see if the nodule is hyperactive. If the TSH is normal or high, or the nodule doesn't show any iodine uptake, the risk for cancer is higher and you do an ultrasound to decide where to go next. If the nodule is larger than 1 cm and it has any solid components, or if it's under 1 cm but has characteristics like calcifications and large nearby lymph nodes or grows from one scan to the next, you should get a fine needle aspirate to send to pathology to evaluate for cancer. There are a few other branches on the decision tree, but those steps are the most important to know for now. That should do it for thyroid disorders. For take-home points, remember that you should start treatment and not wait for confirmatory results in any newborn who screens positive for congenital hypothyroidism. The sooner you start, the better the outcome will be. Low energy, weight gain, and bradycardia should all tip you off for hypothyroidism, while hyperthyroidism has basically the exact opposite symptoms. For any thyroid disorder, the first step in evaluating is always to check the TSH and free T4. Thanks for listening. If you like this episode, please give us a rating at iTunes or wherever else you find your podcasts. If you have any suggestions for future episodes or things we can do differently, you can leave a comment online or email directly at pedsoup, that's P-E-D-S-S-O-U-P, at gmail.com. I'm Jim McCarthy, and we'll be back next time with more Peds Soup.